In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you join me in prayer? Thank you, Father, for the privilege of worship, for the opportunity to be in this place, to experience your presence, to feel your ministry and your love. Some of us have come today with confusion and hurt, pain, sorrow. Some of us come with things so deeply on our minds that we don't tell a soul about them. We do ask that you would minister to all of us and that all of us would leave here today refreshed and renewed in spirit and in mind because we've been with you and with each other, because we've known your love and care. In Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, I found myself part of a group that was standing outside of a nursery window at a hospital. Now, you've, you've been there. You've done that before. All those beautiful babies. And I was reminded of that this morning during this dedication. And babies are beautiful, aren't they? I mean, I just love babies. We have two, but if my wife had been willing, well, she wasn't willing, so we have two. <laughs> but we were standing outside this nursery window admiring those babies, and suddenly a fellow pushed his way through the group, put his nose flat up against the glass, began to wave his arms and point, and he said, that one's mine, that one's mine. Well, you know immediately that's his first one. We all got a chuckle from that. But it occurs to me that that's exactly how God behaved on the night Jesus was born. Countless babies had been born, but God didn't get too excited. But on the night Jesus was born, he sent an angel to announce the birth. 
an angelic chorus to sing about it. He sent shepherds to worship. In God's enthusiasm, it's almost as if he put his nose up against the window of time and eternity, and he shouted out for all the world to hear, That one's mine. That one's mine. Years later, the Apostle John, writing about that event, said in the Word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And the interesting thing is that the word John used, flesh, is the same word that Paul used to describe human nature with all of its frailty and brokenness and tendency to sin. But I believe the Holy Spirit definitely led John to use that word, flesh, in application to Jesus. Because God wants us to know that that baby was like us in every conceivable way. All the needs and emotions we have, He had. He would know pain and weariness, hunger, thirst, joy, anger. He was flesh. And yet at the same time, He was fully God. The word we use for that is incarnation. God robed Himself in flesh. He condescended to stoop down and identify with us. Interesting concept, isn't it? That God sent a helper to us. He didn't send a, a stalwart man able to take care of himself. But He sent a baby. A baby. He whose robe is a light and whose canopy is space left it all behind to be clothed in cloth and placed in a manger. In the beginning was the Word. He was before time. It was through Him that everything that is came into being. Yet that dynamic, creative, preexistent Word of God became a part of a primitive world where he depended on his mother's milk for survival itself. God lowered himself to be one of us. I spent part of my life in Georgia, as the pastor noted. Augusta, Georgia. I said in the earlier service, and I've said it for a long, long time, no offense meant to any Georgians here, but when I got old enough to know where I was, I left. <laughs> the community I lived in had a 10-foot board fence that ran the entire length of the block. That fence was there because people on one side of the fence thought they were too good to mix with people on the other side of the fence. Now, you know, there's a lot of that kind of thinking among men. Segregation, social clubs, 
elitist concepts whereby one man says of another man, I am better than you. But the incarnation symbolizes that God, holy and awesome, so much better, so much above us, God did not consider Himself too good to mix with us. He came from eternity into the world, lowered Himself to be one of us. Hallelujah! What a Savior! What a Savior! Coming into the world in such a helpless state as a baby. In the 18th century, there was a school of philosophical thought called deism that contended that God wound the world up like some gigantic clock and then just walked off, leaving it to tick on its own. Well, it would have been easier for God to have done that, wouldn't it? To have made us and to have forgotten us. But He didn't do that. He chose to become one of us. He chose to enter into our world. Why is that? I can't begin today to catalog the prevalent signs of pessimism and despair. I mean, you can't even think about the events of this past week without realizing we're a pretty worthless lot, aren't we? The way we treat each other, the things we do to each other, the sinfulness, the sinfulness that we seem to be so capable of so easily. Yet, amazingly, all of our ugliness, all of our brokenness, those kinds of actions on our part didn't drive God away. They drew God near. Why is it? Why is it that when things seem to be at their very worst... God is at His very best. But that's the way it is. Consider the oppressive times in which Jesus was born. Brutal Roman rulers governed the Jews. The average person paid 30 to 40 percent of his income in taxes. Crime was prevalent. You dare not travel by yourself from Jerusalem to Jericho. Corruption was widespread among religious and political leaders. People were despondent and downcast. Sounds like today, doesn't it? But the really interesting thing is that God didn't turn His back on that society. God didn't say to folks then nor now those callous words that I've had said to me so many times in the past, particularly when I was young. Well, you've made your bed hard. Now lie in it. Somehow I never thought that people who said that to me loved me. But God never says that. When I was 15 years old, I had an older cousin named Cleveland. Now, Cleveland and I were very, very close. One night, 
we decided we wanted to take a motor scooter ride. Well, he was older than I was, so he was going to be the driver. Just a few things wrong with this motor scooter ride. Cleveland had no driver's license. The scooter had no muffler and no lights. And what really complicated it, we were in the city. You can see this train wreck happening, right? Well, it wasn't long before we met the police. I forget exactly who encountered whom first, but we did manage to get together. <laughs> and that policeman was very unhappy. Very unhappy. Uh, you know, I had several run-ins with that same policeman over the years, and I never found him happy. <laughs> but he was so unhappy that night that he called the paddy wagon to take my cousin to jail. And I can still see my cousin getting up in that big old box and those doors clang. That policeman turned around to me and he said, Boy, I don't know why their voice is always so gruff, you know. Boy, he got my attention. I said, Yes, sir. He said, do you know where this other boy's parents live? I said, yes, sir, I sure do. He said, then you go tell them where they can find him. And I said, yes, sir. And I left that scooter right where it was. Ran just as fast as I could to Cleveland's house. When I got there, his folks are already in bed. Well, I burst into their bedroom and I said, Uncle Theo, Uncle Theo, Cleveland's in jail. Well... Now, you got to know my Uncle Theo. He has never in his whole life done anything fast. He kind of raised up on his elbows, said, he is. And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir, he is. Well, did he get there by himself? And I said, well, yes, sir, I guess so. And he said, as he laid back down, then he can get out by himself. <laughs> well, fortunately for Cleveland, that was not his mother's attitude. <laughs> but aren't you glad that God didn't have my Uncle Theo's attitude? Aren't you glad that God didn't look at us and say, Man, you have flat made a mess of things. No, He didn't. He looked at us and He said, Hmm, you've gotten into a terrible, chaotic mess on your own, but you can't get out of it on your own, so I'm going to come help you get out of the mess you created. What was that baby's name? His name was Jesus and why was he called Jesus? Matthew one twenty one says, You shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sin. What a paradox. God sent a helpless baby to help helpless men. What a paradox.
God stooped down. He lowered Himself. Holy, awesome God stooped down to our level. He put on flesh. But that condescending act of identification was more than just God stooping down. It was also a sacrificial act. We sometimes sing that Jesus came out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe. But Jesus didn't just come into that world of woe. He tasted deeply of that woe. His way was one of poverty and humility. He had nothing, nothing when he walked upon the earth. He even took his tax out of a fish's mouth. He had nothing. He created all the gold and silver, all the precious stones. He owns all the cattle on a thousand hills, but when He walked among us, He had nothing. He ate from another man's table. He preached from another man's boat. He had His last supper in another man's upper room. He prayed His most agonizing prayer in another man's garden. He was judged, condemned, crucified and died in another man's place. And finally, he was buried in another man's tomb. He said, the foxes of the earth have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He gave up heaven's glories to come to a world that did not want him. He had nothing. When people tell me that they won't become a Christian because of what they might have to give up, it's really easy for me to remind them of what he gave up so they could become a Christian. God stooped down. And that baby became a stalwart man who died on a Roman cross. A condescending act, a sacrificial act of identification. But the most intriguing thing about the Incarnation to me is the mystery of it all. The poet has mused, I know not how Bethlehem's babe could in the Godhead be. I don't know either. How can a baby be born without an earthly father? You know, for centuries men argued that point. And then finally at the influential Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D., a group of very smart theologians got together, studied the Scripture and prayed, and formalized the doctrine of incarnation. Fully God, fully man. They thought they would put all the discussion to rest, but they didn't. And the reason they didn't is people don't like mysteries. 
We don't like what we can't explain, do we? But the mystery to me is not how God did it. I think God can do anything He wants to do, any way He wants to do it. The mystery to me is why God did it. Why did God send His Son into a broken world that would reject His Son to die for people who were as sinful as we are? Why would God do that? What is there about you and me that God won't let go of? I don't know about you. I don't know you that well. But but I know in my own life, I have never done anything that deserves Jesus Christ. Nothing. Everything I have received from Jesus Christ has been pure grace and mercy. I don't deserve Him. Not in any way do I deserve Him. I mean, it's easy enough to love people who are lovely, who are cultured and refined, who are like us, who love us back. It's easy to love people like that. But to love as God loved, oh, that's something else entirely. John said, for God so loved the world. That's the idea. For God so loved the unlovely. Paul thought about it. And he phrased it like this. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't understand that. I'll never understand that. But the beauty is, God doesn't ask us to understand it. Just accept it. I want to close with a passage of Scripture from John chapter 3. I'm reading from the message. This is how much God loved the world. He gave His Son, His one and only Son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in Him, Anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending His Son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in Him is acquitted. No, God doesn't ask us to understand. Before the foundation of the world, God had Jesus Christ in mind as the Savior of the world. God's love, God's magnificent love, all that He's done for us, Just ask one thing in return, that we love Him back. And all of His grace and mercy, 
all of your sin and brokenness is washed away. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And all any one of us has to do is love him back. Is that too much to ask? If you're here today and you're not a believer, I want to encourage you after the service to either seek me out or the pastor or some other church staff and let that be known. And this very day, give your heart in trust to Jesus Christ. John's right. He can make your life whole again. May we pray. Father, we're so thankful for your love. Thankful for Jesus Christ coming to live in our midst. Thankful, Father, for your grace and mercy that takes away all our sin. We ask now that you would give to those of us who've experienced that an abundantly thankful heart. And to those of us who have not, a willingness today to accept you as Lord of life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.